Welcome to Season 2 of Mindfulness Off the Cushion. If you're familiar with the challenges of living mindfully and are looking for help in your daily dance with suffering, our goal is to be a resource for you. Once again, we're brought to you by the Austin Mindfulness Center. As we continue forward in our season with Dr. Sears, we begin the process of letting go of learning about the man, the man, Dr. Richard W. Sears, and our exploration of the common myths. And we begin turning this ship of ours towards new waters, the waters of discovery and learning. Beautiful blue waters that are teeming with scientific evidence that directly correlates mindfulness practice with physiological changes, including changes in our brains. Our North Star for this journey is to uncover the healing powers of mindfulness. Our plan is to begin by reviewing how mindfulness is integrated into therapy today, and then we'll move into how it works with specific presenting issues. What do we mean by presenting issues? It's a bit of an industry term. We do recognize that, but it is what everyday folks tend to cite as the reason they are struggling, the cause of their suffering. Things like stress, burnout, anxiety, depression, grief and loss, chronic pain, relationship issues, the list seems to go on and on. But let's be honest, all of these presenting issues sound really bad. Or maybe they sound very familiar to you. Regardless, What I think we'll learn over the rest of our season with Dr. Sears is that our thoughts may not be helping us. Our thoughts may, in fact, be doing the opposite. Because if we believe everything we think, every thought we have, we might be believing something that is entirely untrue. So let's jump in to another episode of Mindfulness Off the Cushion. Welcome back, Dr. Sears, to Mindfulness Off the Cushion. Today, we're going to focus on the introduction of a larger topic, which is mindfulness in therapy. I'd love to get your take first and foremost, before we talk really specifically about therapy, perhaps you could give us your take on why is it that Americans today are responding so passionately to this thing we call mindfulness? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And there's so many factors. You know, I certainly am not going to touch on all of them or even know all of them, to be honest, and the amount of time we have here. But, you know, one thing that comes to my mind is people are often attracted to something different 
from their own culture. So back in the 60s, you know, Ram Das, Be Here Now, Alan Watts, uh, talking about the importance of being in the present moment. You know, it's the same stuff that all the philosophers of every spiritual tradition had been talking about and everyone already had and already possessed, but because it was presented in a different way, it, it got this attention. So there are a lot of people who are influenced by sort of those Eastern wisdom traditions. And if I had to point to a specific name, I'd say it was John Cabot Zen, who influenced by Zen, decided, you know, I don't really like all this stuff with these uh, meaningless questions and some of the trappings. And um, well, what's the essence of how we can help people? And certainly the idea of mindfulness being present in the moment was powerful. So he developed a program. But Beyond that, what I think was really the important and critical point is that he started researching it in a controlled way. See, anybody can say, well, I'm doing something and it's making people better. But until you really get some controlled research, you don't know, is it your charming personality? (laughs) Is it the passage of time? Is it some other factor that you don't even know of? that's actually creating the change. So he was able to set up very controlled experiments with his mindfulness groups. And, you know, people just couldn't ignore the changes, the reductions in stress, the improvements in mood, even things like uh, psoriasis getting better, uh, blood pressure going down, you know, physiological changes. And that just got the research ball rolling to where, you know, lots of brain studies. Um, and I've even had the opportunity to participate in some where, you know, as maybe we've talked about a little bit, changes in the brain start happening and that can be measured over time based on these mindfulness groups. I love the fact that mindfulness can, in fact, change the architecture or the makeup of our brains, making particular areas of it stronger. And I'm assuming that there is a reason that we want to do that. Can you help us understand why we would want to change our brains? Yeah, much like, you know, the rest of our bodies, the more we use certain parts of our brains, the stronger they become. So this stuff with technology is wonderful. I mean, we're using it right now to be able to communicate with each other and with other people from here. But as we were talking about before, you know, we live in this world where there's just a short clip here and a short clip there, and I'm virtually interacting with people. And so I'm not exercising my ability to keep my attention for longer periods of time. I'm not practicing my ability to read people's facial expressions and have emotional intelligence and convey messages with the tone of how I'm speaking and, you know, so many things like that, that we're just not exercising. So whether it's through a formal mindfulness practice or just mindfully acting in the world, we can just start exercising those parts. And the good news is if it feels difficult at first, the more you practice it, the more you're going to strengthen those parts of your brain. And so this is one of the reasons it got so much research attention. We can see the changes happening, people improving in their anxiety and depression as a result of practicing these things, paying attention, being more conscious in their choices of what they do and how they respond to situations. Dr. Steers. You point to Dr. John Kabat-Zinn as being one of his pioneers who really tried to standardize mindfulness, meaning that 
try to offer a, a program that could be replicated, duplicated in a controlled environment to really see whether this stuff works or whether it doesn't. And it sounds like there's been a lot more interest, a lot more publications in the last 30, 40 years uh, into mindfulness. The number of publications, especially in the last 20 years, has increased quite a bit. That's a reflection of institutions, organizations, the government investing money into this research. So my question is, is, why do you feel that research institutions or grants that are out there exist today? Like, what is it about today's time that creates a need for this type of study? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And my guess here, too, is there are probably a lot of different factors. But I do remember, you know, and it depends on where you are in the country, but sort of this thought that, well, paying attention to your mind or something that looks like meditation, there's something weird going on. You know, it's been associated with uh, people in the 60s using drugs and, uh, you know, we're practical people. And so we don't have any interest in that. But you just can't argue with this research and the volume of it that's come out and the brain changes and the uh, clinical application. So a big part of it has been how do we take this very simple principle of being present in the moment and really understand what's happening and figure out what it is that's creating the change and how do we create more of this for people in a simple way and how do we describe it to people? You know, um, there's such a human tendency to say, well, I did it the hard way, so everyone else has to do it too. I literally met this teacher from Japan who said he sat in meditation for three years without ever laying down, you know, and that's sort of, this is a tough kind of thing that I can do this. And, and yet, what does that have to do with having a partner and holding down a job and you know, it's wonderful to see people like that in the world, but the, the principle is just here we are in this moment, no matter how you get there. So I think some of that stuff had to sort of settle down and get to the science of, no, we're talking about attention, attentional processes. How can we be present? Because that's the only time you're ever going to do anything. How can you make better decisions? And if you're able to make better decisions, you're always going to have better outcomes in your physical and mental health. Do you foresee, Dr. Sears, any kind of dangers with us being so, let's say, obsessed with the outcomes of the meditation process, like neuroplasticity and the ability for the brain to change? So it seems like there is definitely a, a want or a desire for us to change the brain. So we say we're going to meditate and it's going to change the brain in this way. Is the mindfulness practice being present really about changing the brain or is it about learning to relate with ourselves? and with others with greater compassion, wisdom, skill, so forth? You know, this is such a great question. And to me, it comes down to like driving a car. You know, if you drive a car, what are you doing it for? Where are you going? Where do you want to be? But a few of us need to understand how the engine works, because without that, no one's going anywhere. So until we have mechanics or engineers that can design efficient engines, you know, we're not going anywhere. So it's nice to understand the processes from a scientific point of view. It's good to look at the brain scans, but for each individual person, yeah, it doesn't matter. And when, when we say brain changes, these are so tiny. It'd be very hard to measure in any one individual person. It's more over a lot of people that it is something happening, but it's not like, you know, get bulges 
in our brain. So uh, the other thing you bring up is why are we doing this? Yeah. And this really becomes important in therapy. So I'm going to be present so I don't have to feel anything. And now I'm not really being present because I'm trying to be present for a future purpose, which is kind of backwards and actually tends to increase the struggle going on. And this was one of the big reasons, again, so much research and more funding is coming at it to try to understand this process. Because if I'm fighting my own thoughts, fighting my own emotions, even fighting my own physical pain and my body and things like that, I'm fighting myself, right? These are my thoughts and my emotions. And so sometimes the things people do in therapy is actually making it worse or at least um, harder than it needs to be. And so by starting from where we are, even if I don't like this thought, I don't like this feeling, here it is. Now I've opened up a choice. And we could say this is one of the goals of all of these mindfulness programs is by getting present in the moment and noticing what reality actually is, not what I hope it is. I've now opened up the possibility to make a conscious choice, a response, as opposed to getting lost in an automatic reaction that may or may not be helpful. So pausing and noticing, now I can consciously respond instead of automatically react. This podcast is sponsored by the Austin Mindfulness Center, the premier mental health counseling center in Texas for mindfulness-based therapy, education, and coaching. If you're an individual or couple struggling with stress, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, or you're just looking to better equip yourself to gracefully navigate these turbulent times, you can visit us online at austinmindfulness.org and request an appointment today. Now let's get back to our podcast. So let's go a little bit deeper into the background of psychotherapy or therapy. And as we go deeper into this season, we're going to touch on more specific presenting issues like anxiety, depression, stress, etc. But briefly, I just want to mention CBT. Sometimes we bring up a few acronyms, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which was originally developed back in the 1960s, which, you know, amazingly, that's, you know, what, 50, 60 plus years ago. What is it about mindfulness that has created now what we call MBCT or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. There's something there I know around this concept of being in the present moment, focusing on attentional processes. Maybe you could unpack the importance of mindfulness there in terms of the clinical application. Certainly aspects of mindfulness have always been in therapy, whether or not we called it that. It's just bringing attention to the present moment, right? And as all therapists know, and probably all people for that matter, when you bring something into the present, it's so much more powerful, right? So if I'm sitting there in session with somebody and they say, yeah, last night I got in this argument and my partner said this and it made me upset, you know, we can do some work with that. But when you bring it right into the moment and as you're telling me this story, how are you feeling right now? A lot more comes open. It's a lot richer. We can really work with it much more directly. Now, it's sometimes easier as the therapist to talk about there and then than here and now, especially when we get into, well, 
how is it when I say something and you disagree with me? So now it's alive and present right in the moment. So that concept's always been there. Mindfulness is just making it more directly apparent. And so to be more aware of your own thinking, more aware of your own emotional reactions, more aware of what's even going on in your body, that's going to give you some clues. And so we weren't going to throw away anything that works in therapy. In fact, all good therapists have lots and lots of tools, and we add this present moment awareness to sort of enhance all the other things that we're doing. One of the reasons mindfulness was so helpful with CBT in particular is it's really hard to become aware of your own thoughts. We can Mm. do this thinking so automatically, we don't even know we're thinking that. And you know, it's always easier to see in other people than in ourselves. But, you know, somebody gets an idea or they think you did something that you didn't do and they're all upset with you and that becomes their reality. And for them to even recognize, oh, wait, I'm having a thought that this happened. It may or may not be true, but even notice, what do I automatically think? You know, that's this concept called metacognition, the ability to notice my thinking or thoughts about thinking. It's a pretty advanced skill. And so mindfulness has been able to help people notice this directly. The other thing is one of the powerful things of cognitive behavioral therapy is to recognize that our thoughts affect the way we feel. So the idea at first was, okay, well, if we can change our thoughts, then we'll change the way we feel. And sometimes that's wonderful, right? When you look at something from another angle or a friend says, well, have you ever thought about it this way? Oh, wow, this opening happens, the way you feel about it shifts. But it seems like this is always harder for more intelligent people, by the way. So if you have this problem, that tells me you're really intelligent. <laughs> you have a thought, and then the opposite one automatically pops up. You know, you're having a bad day and you think, I just can't do anything right. Well, come on, you've done some things right in your life. Well, that's only because I had help. Well, no, you've put in a lot of effort. Well, but I've messed up way more than I ever got right. You know, and suddenly you're arguing inside your own head. So this metacognition process, it's also called decentering, is the ability to step back. Wow, look at that. I'm arguing in my own mind. I must be feeling down or stressed out. I'm gonna go take care of myself. I don't have to fight my own thinking or fix my own thinking. It's just something happening inside my own mind. Is that something that distinguishes CBT from MBCT? Yes. And as time is going on, that's really blurring so that it's sort of all contained. You know, if you go to a CBT conference today, it's inclusive of all kinds of mindfulness-based approaches as Mm -hmm. well. And the most modern form of CBT is called process-based CBT, where you're looking at the processes going on, including the process of thinking versus uh, attacking thoughts. And by the way, it's not that challenging thoughts. You know, well, have you ever thought about it this way? It's not that that doesn't work, but what they realized is it wasn't the challenging that made it work. It was now you're talking about it as a thought. So you're actually doing that decentering, that stepping back. In other words, you know, if there's a thought I'm a loser, well, you've been able to do these other things. It's not that I'm going to war and fixing this thought. It's now I'm talking about the thought as a thought. And that's the thing that's helpful. And this is a very, very subtle point. We're not saying that what you're thinking isn't important or based in reality, but we confuse our thoughts with what they 
represent, right? So I say the word water, that's very useful. You know what I'm talking about, but it's not this. Now that's obvious, but when I have a thought, I'm a loser, there's not a concrete physical reality to that. That's uh, an echo in my mind. Maybe something told me from years ago. Maybe it's an indication just that I'm having a bad day or a bad week or a bad year or whatever it might be. Um, so I can learn to relate differently to these things that are going on inside my mind. And it's a very subtle but very important distinction. That really hits home for me. I, I have recognized in the past that just getting into therapy, talking to a professionally licensed counselor about your problems, about your thoughts, about your life can be extremely therapeutic, extremely helpful. But it's interesting you're connecting the dots here between something that we do, quote unquote, in therapy and something that this whole idea of metacognition or the process of thinking and decentering as actually a, a key component of mindfulness itself. And of course, here we are in the podcast called Mindfulness Off the Cushion. Maybe you could go just a little bit deeper into helping our listeners understand the importance of recognizing the process of thinking versus getting caught up in the content of our thoughts themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. And again, here it was all along in therapy, and we kind of knew it was helpful, but now we're understanding what's really going on. So exactly what you said, as I talk in therapy or even just talk to a friend, I've put those thoughts and words outside of my head, and now I can hear myself talk about it. I get a little perspective on what I'm thinking. Same thing with journaling, just writing your thoughts down. Now, certainly there's a way you can do it where I'm just uh, angry all the time. But the idea is you're putting your thoughts down on paper and now you can see them. And, you know, you really get a sense of this if you do keep a journal where you're really upset and you write this out and then you go back to it a month later or even years later and you read that and you think, how could I have ever thought that? How could I have ever believed that was true? But in that moment, oh, it's so true and it has such powerful emotions attached to it. And yet it's just thinking. So this is a subtle thing. I'm not saying thinking is bad. You know, it's very useful. But we end up getting caught up in fights with our own thoughts sometimes. So... What we're talking about with this is seeing the thinking for what it is, you know, a representation of reality, sometimes useful, sometimes old echoes. I may have used this analogy before, but, you know, I think of being in a movie theater or just watching a good movie, right? You get lost in the movie and you forget it's a movie. And these images evoke emotions, you know, fear, sadness, joy, whatever it is. But when you step back or you pause the movie, you realize, oh, this isn't even real. These are all images. You know, they might represent things, but that in and of itself isn't happening right now. So same thing in your mind. You know, you can be thinking about all the stuff you got to do at work or all the things that happened yesterday. And it's not here. It's not in front of you. And yet you feel all the same fear, sadness, anxiety, whatever it is, but it's only happening in your mind. Now, your mind's trying to help. It wants you to learn from the past, and that's not a bad thing. It wants you to prepare for the future, and that's sometimes useful. But for a lot of people, that becomes their reality instead of, here's my reality, and 
these thoughts are here and I can choose if I want to plan for the future or learn from the past, but I don't have to automatically assume it's true. And again, this is so much easier to see in other people. Imagine a three-year-old, you know, that read that uh, an asteroid killed all the dinosaurs. Oh no, you know, we're all going to die. Well, it's possible, but you can see the thinking, you don't get upset with them, right? Or friend of yours, you know, lost a loved one. You just know they're going to be sad. You don't blame them for the way they're thinking. You just know that where they are right now, this is how their mind is going to be processing. And you can kind of step back and see the bigger picture. Well, of course, you're thinking that way and feeling that way. And so rather than fighting our thoughts, you actually develop compassion for them, which sounds strange, but even a thought that says, you know, you're a loser. Oh, that's sad that that thought got in my head. You know, maybe some well-intentioned or not so well-intentioned person said that to me and it just still echoes in my mind or telling me that I'm really having a tough time. And so I should be compassionate with myself and take care of myself to get through this hard time, not beating myself up as somehow that's going to make me better at getting through this hard time. So thank you, Dr. Sears, for talking to us about the importance of mindfulness and why we practice mindfulness, not just off the cushion, but also in the therapeutic environment. Thank you so much for that. And what kind of exercise do you think you can leave us with today? You know, we're talking a lot about noticing thoughts, metacognition. So that might be a good one because for a lot of people, they think, well, I can't stop noticing my thoughts. They're constantly going around in my head, but there's a different way we can notice our thoughts with a little more compassion, a little more space, a little more distance to be less caught up. And that takes practice. Um, so that, that might be a good thing to practice now. Yeah, that's perfect. So if you're new to Mindfulness Off the Cushion, we'll be releasing that uh, mindfulness meditation in the following days as a bonus episode. So thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Sears. My pleasure. <laughs> 